a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we explored treatment of major mental health issues. Our first guest, Ryan Hassan, was a former tradie and now certified wellbeing practitioner and founder of the Centre for Healing. He is someone who struggled and ultimately triumphed over profound issues relating to addiction, anxiety and depression. We were then joined by our second guest, Dr Anthony Barnes, a forensic psychiatrist working predominantly in women's correctional facilities. He provided an insider's view of medication, psychotherapy and contemporary psychiatric care. Ryan Hassan had a serious problem with drugs, mainly GHB and ice. It was an addiction so severe that it led him into the jaws of the law and ultimately jail. That said, this proved a turning point of sorts and was the start of a new journey towards mental well-being and a career in health. It led him to start the Centre for Healing located in Melbourne. How on earth did you go from being a tradie to one of Melbourne's most engaged health and well-being practitioners? Yeah, it's an interesting transition, isn't it? Um, I was actually an air conditioning mechanic, so a tradie pretty much from after I finished high school. I did that job for 11 years. The reason now that I'm not fixing air conditioners, which I'm happy to, it's summertime here in Melbourne, uh, and I'm working with people suffering from addiction and mental illnesses because I had my own journey with those things, my own pain and suffering when it comes to addiction and mental illness. So I had a marriage breakup in 2014, I was around 30 at the time and I'd sort of been someone who had 30 years, like a lifetime of suppressed emotions and undealt with stuff. I was a very anxious kid. I was a very anxious teenager and that carried through into my 20s. I did use drugs and alcohol a lot throughout my 20s, but I was still what you would call functioning. I still held down my job and from the outside looking in, I sort of had my stuff together, so to speak. After my marriage broke down in in 2014, like I said, uh, things went downhill really, really fast. Um, It was like the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Uh, I started using ice and GHB very regularly, um, you know, maybe three, four days out of the week, every week, and then soon that became everyday use. Um, I went right down into the scene. I ran out of whatever money I had pretty quickly. I started dealing drugs to support my habit. I was living in a drug house out in the eastern suburbs, a place that People came and went all the time. No one really slept. And I was just deep, deep in that scene. I'd cut out my close friends and family, like the really good people in my life, because so much guilt and shame in my system, so to speak, like guilt and shame, the two biggest drivers of addiction. And I was riddled with it at the time. So I'd shut my friends and family out. I was deep in this drug scene. I ended up getting arrested a couple of times, um, spent some time in remand, in jail. And, um, it was digging myself out of that hole, uh, which has led me to do what I do now. That is really quite a tale. I guess for many people, when they hear remand, jail, it's viewed as a one-way street. 
How did you pick an alternate path? Like, what exactly happened for you? You're, you're, did you go to court? And Yeah, I, by the time I got round to the court case and everything, I'd actually completely come out the other side of my addiction and I was able to heal myself. So by the time the court case come around, because there's quite a few months gap in between, you know, getting arrested and then going to court. Um, it's funny you say that people think it's a one-way street. I actually recently spoke to the lady who arrested me all the way back in 2015 and um, she said, oh, it's good to hear a good story for a change because we're so used to just seeing the same people, the same people, the same people over and over again in strife. When it comes to me finding the alternate path to, to getting myself well, it's really that path that chose me looking back on it, so to speak, because I got arrested the first time and sort of realized hey this life that I'm living isn't sustainable just for just for people's benefit what happens when you when you get arrested for say trafficking drugs so for me uh, I was picked up after a high speed car chase I was in a car that was stolen that I didn't know was stolen anyway big story there. We could make a movie about it. Anyway, I was picked up and then I was taken back to a police station in the eastern suburbs. Then starts a whole process of being questioned quite thoroughly by police. I was in there for pretty much all of the day. By this time, I was starting to withdraw or detox um, mm. from ICE and GHB, which makes things rough. Didn't get much food or water and that kind of thing because they're trying to wear you down. Um, I ended up then a uh, magistrate comes in to see if I could get bailed and let out for the night, which I wasn't able to. Um, so I was taken to a different police station to stay the night and then transferred into the city the next day where I spent all day in a remand cell waiting to get a bail hearing. Um, for that time, you sort of in a very small white concrete cell with in the city. I was with, I think, six other guys in there and um, all not in very good mental states at the mm. time. By the time I was told, yep, you're going to go out to bail, because I didn't get told about the process and I hadn't done this before, so I didn't know what was going you're on. You're an air conditioning mechanic. Oh, yeah, well, I'd, yeah, I'd stopped yeah. that job for the drug dealing at this yeah, point, yeah. but um, I had no idea what was going on. So someone then comes into the cell and says, come with me. I get walked out into a courtroom. I'm in the same clothes I've been in for two or three days. I'm withdrawing from drugs and uh, I'm in this big crowded courtroom. There's like kids, grade three or four kids on an excursion and everything and I'm in handcuffs. Just a, one of those moments where you're like, how the hell did I end up here, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, I was then, at the end of that day, I was granted bail. So you put in a holding cell, again, waited for a few hours to get processed. Then I was given a bag of kind of my belongings that I had with me when I was arrested. And then I was sort of pushed out into the middle of Melbourne on a Thursday night. And I was like, oh, what happens now? And they're like, you're in Melbourne, mate, go for it. So I started going through my bag. Um, my wallet was in there, but all money and cards and everything had been taken out and all my phones had been confiscated. So I had no way of contacting anyone. I had no money. It was an interesting process. I did find a $20 Coles Meyer voucher in my wallet. So I went and bought some food from Coles because I was starving and then had to beg a guy at an internet cafe to just let me use the internet for five or 10 minutes so I could let someone know that I'd been arrested and where I was. And luckily enough, they let me use the internet and someone came and picked me up. Um, it was interesting. While I was in remand, the whole time I'm like, this is it, this is it, this is it. I'm turning my life around. I'm going to call mum and dad and get them back in the picture. I will never touch drugs again. After I got picked up in the city, less than an hour later, I was using drugs again. That is an incredibly enthralling and disturbing story. How, do, how can someone on the outside, I guess, understand what exactly is going on for someone who's addicted? And like, was, were you offered any kind of care at that time? No, I wasn't offered any care at that time. I was sort of, I said, I was pushed out with my little plastic bag yeah. of goodies and said, you're in Melbourne and that was it. Um, so basically 
all the ideas I had of, of turning my life around faded away very quickly because all of a sudden, all my emotional baggage, all my pain, all the stuff that I've been running away from with drugs was all just right at the surface again. Now, the issue with addiction, it's not about the drug. Uh, it's about the actual, the drug use is an attempt for us to solve a problem. It's an attempt for us to distract ourselves or escape or get away from the pain that we're in at the time. Um, so you can have the most amazing ideas that you're going to stop using, but if you haven't addressed the underlying pain, which I hadn't, all I'd done was been put in a cell to detox from the drugs, then naturally I would go back to using again. And that starts this whole cycle of guilt and shame where I'm using again. The more guilt and shame we have, the more we want to escape and use, and mm. you're just stuck in this cycle. Did at this point, you've got some insight. You're like, I'm on drugs. I'm like, this is an issue. I'm on drugs. I don't really want to be on drugs. Was there any help seeking by you? Did you try and plug into the the system? Does I mean, I don't know what people do. Do you knock on the GP's door at 7am? And- so, yeah, what I did at this point, um, a few days after this, I realised that, hey, this life isn't sustainable. I'm going to end up in jail or dead. I need to do something because you get quite defeated in that state. You'll you'll understand that you can stop using drugs, but you don't want to go back to that life, okay? Because that life, there's some sort of void. That's why we use drugs in the first place. And we don't want to go back to that void. So I was essentially seeking help initially because I had this pretty serious court case coming up. And I'm like, it's going to look good for me if I've been to treatment and got clean and that kind of thing. So I did what everyone else does, they get on Google and start right. trying to work out what's going on. Yeah. So I Googled rehab, rehab Melbourne into Google and then started looking at my options. But then the options that I had were, you know, residential rehab, which is a facility that you go and stay. That can be one month, three months, six months, a year and there's public or private, okay? Private rehab, you're looking at $30 plus $1,000. I didn't have that kind of money and I wasn't about to call up my mum and dad and tell them to remortgage their house to do that. The other option was public. So I looked into the public system. At that stage in Victoria here, there was a six-month waiting list to get into a public rehab. I thought, I haven't got three months, (laughs) let alone six months. So I ended up, I was living out in the southeast at that point and the government service, the catchment area, there was a company called Cicada. I contacted them and they said, you can do what's called a home-based detox. So basically it's through the government, you get a, like a care and recovery worker, a nurse that can give you advice, a doctor, they'll set you up with doctor's appointments and that kind of thing. And also a psychologist. So basically you get a bit of care and everything, but you're still doing everything with home, uh, from home. So prior to that, you'd never seen a doctor before for this? No. Okay. No. Because just you couldn't do it, you didn't have a doctor? Uh, I, I didn't think they would help. Okay. Um, I, I, and I didn't, there was a part of me that was running away so much that I actually didn't want anyone telling me that what I was doing was wrong or that I need to stop, basically. You know, we need to come to that own decision on our, by ourselves. Yeah. So uh, I got clean, went through the detox phase, which, you know, years before I'd done it over and over again, so I knew that process pretty well. I then... Um, got set up with doctor's appointments, so I started seeing a GP uh, at a clinic which specialises in a lot of people suffering from addictions and that kind of thing. So I was you know, given some medication to help me through that process. Uh, I had my care and recovery worker who I could call if I was you know, struggling or that kind of thing. And I was set up with a psychologist who I ended up not seeing and ended up taking the alternate path, um, which is the route of healing that I was able to go through. So- did you ever meet the psychologist or you never met them? I never met them. Okay. And what made you not decide what made you decide not to go down that path? So what happened? 
I'd gotten clean. I was clean for 12 days. It was a very long 12 days because I just stopped using the drug. I hadn't addressed any of the reasons why I was using in the first place. And then I relapsed and I relapsed. I was back on it for a week. And that was the, the last time that I used. During that week, a lot of things happened. Number one, my care and recovery worker set me up with an appointment with the psychologist. And I swear it was booked in for a Friday morning at nine o'clock. And I had let my family back in at this point. I'd let my close friends back in at this point because I'm like, I need all the support that I can get. I was one of the lucky ones. Like I was so lucky because when I called my parents and called my other close friends, they were there in a heartbeat. Like I remember messaging mm-hmm. a few friends on a Sunday morning at like 6am. They hadn't heard from me in over six months and they were on my doorstep in an hour. A lot of people who go through this lose the support of their friends and their family and they have to kind of do it alone. So mm. I was very fortunate in that respect. So I told everyone at this point, I'm like, I'm seeing a psychologist on Friday at nine. Can't wait to talk about my stuff that's going on. I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but I'm just kind of looking forward to talking to someone. Thursday morning rolls around. It's about 10 a.m. Um, you know, been using again. I was just on the couch and deleting some old text messages on my phone. There was a message from my care and recovery worker at the start of the week confirming my appointment with the psychologist was Thursday at nine o'clock. So I'd got the days wrong and I had just missed the appointment. Oh and in my head, I'm like, I swear it was Friday. I just swear. So I'm beating myself up less than an hour later, an old acquaintance messages me on Facebook out of the blue. Okay, Melissa, who I ended up starting the Centre for Healing yeah. with. She messaged me out of the blue. I, we'd met at uh, doing a talk a couple of years previous, but only met a couple of times. And she's like, hey, what's been going on? I'm like, I could write you a novel on what's been going on in my yeah. life, but still didn't go into any details because I'd spent my whole life, I would never talk about my problems or show anyone that I was struggling. I would deflect, deflect, deflect. So I just started asking her about her life. I knew that she was a therapist, but I didn't know exactly what she did. I thought the conversation was finished And then she sent one more message and she's like, I feel a lot of hurt in your heart. And I'm like, yeah, okay. (laughs) And she goes, can you do something for me and just write down some of the emotions that you're feeling? And I'm like, all right, that sounds weird, but I'll do it. And write it with your wrong hand. So I'm left-handed. So she goes, with your right hand, just write out some of what you're feeling. And it's kind of interesting as you do this process, your hand's kind of shaking. It looks like a child is writing. And I'm someone who just refused to acknowledge your really feel negative emotions my whole life. So to write things on that page like, I feel broken, I feel desperate, I feel alone, I feel fearful, all this kind of stuff, it really, it stirred something up in me, you know? So I said to her, I'm like, hey, I don't know what you do, but can I come see you for a session? And she goes, yeah, sure, you can come in, we'll book a time for next week. And I'm like, no, 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 tomorrow, right? Because that was the Friday. Mm. And she goes, I've literally just had someone message me and a spot's opened up tomorrow to come see me. So I didn't believe in much at that point in my life, but I'm like, I'm going to see her tomorrow. So the next day I walk into her office, I had no idea what she did. She had no idea that I was a drug addict. I walked in there, I'm like 14, 15 kilos lighter than when she'd seen me a few years previous. She she admitted later to being like, Jesus, what happened to this guy? Um, I spent about two and a half, three hours in her office. We spoke about drugs for less than five minutes, maybe two or three minutes. The rest was addressing the stories I'd been telling myself my whole life, the emotional pain, emotional trauma that I've been holding onto forever, the vast, vast majority of which I had no conscious awareness of. And I walked out of her office knowing I'd never need to use drugs again. And like I said, that was then that I completely understood that, oh my God, addiction isn't about the drug. Yes, the drug is a problem, but it's not the main problem. That's an incredible conclusion to arrive at in a a short period of time and something that I think many people who have been in and out of rehab over and over again would would probably be impressed to hear. Do you think that this is something that's possible 
for anyone who's currently struggling. And and that's what we're doing with the centre. That's what we're doing. We're trying to find out, okay? So far, so good. Because what happened, I then, after this first session, I realised, hey, my life's a complete mess. I'm on serious criminal charges. I'd overdosed and written off my car a few weeks earlier. I'm, yeah. you know in dire financial straits, but I knew deep down that I was going to be okay. So I went home, detox for the last time, which is sleeping for four days and feeling like horrible. And then I started seeing her each week, Melissa, because I'm like, I got really curious. I'm like, God, what other stuff do I have going on in here in my heart that I haven't addressed throughout my life? So I kept seeing her. I'm unpacking more and more of my past in this baggage. And then week, maybe five or six of that process, I had the vision or the epiphany, whatever you want to call it, that I want to open a place at some point that is going to help people who are in my situation, who's offering these different types of modalities. Because like I said, when I Googled, the options that I had were so limited. And I think... We can argue about the modalities and methods all day, which we'll get into more, but I think everyone can agree on people need more options uh, in treatment, um, whether it's addiction or mental illness and that kind of thing. So I then went about asking Melissa all the things that she'd studied. Can she train me in everything she knew? What do I need to do? What books do I need to read? What practice do I need to do? And I, I went through that process and got just super curious. I ended up finding everyone that I knew who had got clean from drugs. Let me catch up for a coffee. I want to know how you did it, what the story was. And then during that process, I had sent Melissa a few people I knew from that scene um, struggling with addiction and they were getting really good results as well. So I'm like, all right, it's worked for me. It's worked for a few other people. Is it going to work for the, the greater community? And so there's only one way to find out. Let's start a centre yeah. and see if um, we can help people. So in February 2016, um, we started the business with you know no funding or no backing. We just basically had a lot of passion yeah. <laughs> and energy to do it. And we thought if this works for people, we'll be able to stay in business keep growing and trying to improve what we do. If it doesn't work for people, we'll just simply go out of business really, really fast. And then all of kind of the, the the research that I've done, you know, newer research, people who are, you know, big in the addiction space are really supporting this notion of it being a subconscious attempt to solve a problem of deeper emotional pain and emotional trauma. So Ryan, tell us a bit about some of the modalities that you experienced and that you went off and studied and now practice. So I'll, I'll run you through kind of that first time that I went and saw Melissa and I was able to get that healing experience, sort of what I went through and how that all worked. So a lot of the work we do is addressing suppressed emotions from our past, belief systems, and being able to have people in a very relaxed, safe space to be able to go into that stuff. What does that actually look like though? So we take people through what's called a testing sheet, which is the first half of the session where we'll find out all about their life, okay, what's happening emotionally, what's happening in all areas of their life, what's triggering them. And then we will use some body work, what's called kinesiology, um, to work out what's happening with our subconscious belief system. So our, our whole world is made up of what we believe. What we work with specifically is limiting beliefs. So I'm talking about that voice in your head that might say, I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy, or I'm not worthy of love, or I don't love myself, or life is hard, I need approval, I need validation, I don't trust men, I don't trust women. There's a whole list of them. But these stories that run in our head have a massive impact on our life. Like, you know, I had a very strong belief that I'm not worthy as a human being. So for 30 years, I had that voice in my head saying, you're not worthy, you're not worthy, you're not worthy, no matter what you did. So no wonder someone reaches for a drug or alcohol or shopping or sex or work or gambling, whatever it is to escape from that. So, but just take us back to the, say, the reading of the Mm -hmm. body, because that's the bit that's so different to, I guess, what a traditional psychiatrist or psychologist might offer. 
Well, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, so kinesiology is a method using muscle testing. So our body is a representation of the subconscious mind. Our body doesn't lie, so to speak. So we can actually get feedback from our body to find out what's happening in our subconscious mind. Okay. So I was able to find out that consciously. I thought I loved myself. Like I, I was, I love myself. I love myself. I'm all good. My body told me the exact opposite, that I really hated myself and who I was as a person. Now that we have that valuable information that, hey, you don't love yourself. But how do you work that out? Yeah. So you can do it um, with a practitioner. We have a kinesiologist at the center yep. who's using, so you're, when we speak to someone and they you state something about yourself, your nervous system, just for a second or so, will go weak if that's not true for you or it'll go strong if that is true for you. And there's different ways you can test that. You can also do that yourself. That's interesting. We should get all the camber into that. No, it's... I <laughs> 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 don't think they want that. But um, it's, it's very, very interesting stuff. So a kinesiologist can sort of read our body and what's happening, which is obviously bypassing a lot of our conscious mind and stuff that we don't understand about ourselves. So when I tested up the belief that I love myself, instead of going strong, my whole body just goes weak um, or it did at the time because that's the belief that I had about myself. Once we know that, then we'll use uh, a method called, uh, it's a light hypnosis. It's a form of timeline therapy, which is a form of NLP, but we're basically getting Hang people. Yep. NLP, we're going to unpack that one. You've just, you've just chucked a TLA into the mix. <laughs> that's a three-letter acronym. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so NLP, Neuro Linguistics Programming. Okay, so a couple of guys in the 70s um, decided to go out and look at all of psychotherapy, hypnotists, basically people that are working with people's minds and worked out these, the best healers or people that did that uh, around the world, what were they doing? And let's take all the best parts of that. So there's a lot of different NLP techniques. So basically neuro as in in the brain or nervous system, linguistic, which is our language and programming, which is kind of the software that I'm running, which are these belief systems that I'm talking about. So basically, if you can break it down to a simple sentence, how do I rewrite the story that I tell myself about myself and the world? Because those stories are what get us into so much trouble that I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I don't love myself. They're just stories. They're not essentially truth, but they have a massive impact on how I live my life. So going back to the techniques, we'll put people in a very light trance, okay? They're not deeply hypnotized or anything like that. You're basically just in a very relaxed state. We're just lowering our brain waves slightly so we can go within instead of focusing on the environment all around us. Um, we'll then use certain language, certain triggers and stimulus to specifically ask someone's subconscious mind, when was this belief created? Because every belief that we have about ourselves is created in a single event. A single event happens to us at some point in our life and then we start playing that belief out in patterns forever unless we do the work to change it. So we can then pinpoint. So for me, when I was four years old, I decided that I didn't love myself based on something that you would look back on and go, that's not even a big deal. But to that four-year-old me, it was a massive deal. And in that moment, I decided that I didn't love myself. Okay. And then that carried with me for the rest of my life. By going back to the event when we created the belief, we can shift the belief system for good. Okay. So the two biggest ones for me that got me out of trouble early on was the one that I didn't love myself and also the belief that I can't be vulnerable. So I spent my entire life never letting anybody see me struggle. Um, no one would ever see me cry. I actually didn't cry for over 10 years before I started doing this work. Now I cry all the time, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, once you're able to unpack those things and the world changes, as soon as I shift that belief that I can't be vulnerable, now I can be vulnerable, I can let myself cry and start to feel the emotions that I've been running away from forever. I was able to handle the emotions around my marriage breakup as well as a lot of other things that happened to me. All of a sudden, we literally feel lighter because all this emotion that we've been holding on to is being let go of. 
as soon as we let go of enough of our emotional baggage and these limiting belief systems, then the coping mechanism, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, shopping, gambling, work, will all start to dissipate because the problem that it's solving is not so much a problem anymore. It's quite a compelling account and something that I guess for me as a clinician reflecting back on my time in the system of, I guess, people being dosed to the eyeballs with Valium as they detox and then sort of put into an eight-bed ward with no stimuli and no conversation, no human contact. It really is, I guess, heartening to know that people like you are, are doing things like this. Do you feel that this is something that could or should be mainstreamed? That's that's the plan. Like I said, we need more options for people and things that are working than the current system. I mean, we were speaking earlier about a lot of these reforms that have been happening in the last few years, which is an acknowledgement that the way we've been approaching a certain topic isn't working. So the way we start to create new ideas is by having different conversations and having new options available to people. Now, the options that start working the best will eventually start getting government help and subsidies and will be made more available. So I think by really focusing on this topic and not in the war on drugs kind of way, but in a way that we can have compassion and help people because it's just a system that's very limited at the minute. When I first went and saw that doctor when I was doing the home-based detox, he was like such a great guy and you could see he was very passionate about helping people and he was actually just so frustrated that all he could do really is give me a packet of Zyprexa, which is an antipsychotic medication, and say, take this for a couple of weeks and hopefully you don't become addicted to it. Yeah, I mean, that is the absolute reality for many practicing doctors is that the the guidelines as they stand are very limiting, the structures of remuneration are very limited. Um, Controversial question, a book was released a while ago about trauma, addiction and people's recovery or lack thereof. Great title, The Body Keeps Score. Do you think that's true? Do you think that a lot of what takes people to the doctor that's a physical problem is fundamentally emotional in its origin? Yes, There's a a really, really good study called the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which is, uh, it was actually first a couple of doctors in America started it to do with weight loss because they found that the obese patients that they were able to lose the weight would all put it back on had had some sort of abuse sexually or physically when they were younger. So this is a, a really big study over tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. And it's a simple questionnaire that all patients got given when they came into certain clinics. And it was around experiences that happened to them before the age of 18. Were you sexually abused? Were you physically abused? Was a parent a drug addict or alcoholic? Were they incarcerated? So you get a score of zero to 10, basically. Now, based on those outcomes, the higher your ACE score, your chances of not just mental illness and addiction, but physical illness as well, grow in in perfect correlation with those scores. So if I have an ACE score of zero compared to an ACE score of five, I have a 500% greater chance of having depression as an adult. I have a 500% more chance of being an alcoholic. I have a 780% higher risk of being an IV drug user, and I have a 1,380% greater risk of attempting suicide as an adult. So yes, I believe these conditions at the root uh, are to do with trauma. Ryan, you've provided us with an incredible story, some incredibly personal and, how shall I say, poignant insights. Your story is one that I hope will inspire people to look further and wider and really getting to the root of things so that they can, like you, have a thriving life. But thank you so much for coming in and sharing all of that with us. Absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 
What struck me about Ryan's experience of mental illness is that it defied so many of the other stories we hear. Not only did he make a recovery, he has rebuilt his health and well-being to a level that was better than what he began with. This runs contrary to the experience of most who find themselves in the grips of addiction, let alone the justice system. This said, what remains unclear about Ryan's recovery and practices is whether we can generalise it to other sufferers. Was it his alternative health practices or a good childhood and family that were ultimately the saving grace? Now let's hear from Dr Anthony Barnes. After graduating from Monash University, Anthony was headed for a career in surgery. But the journey took a different turn, arriving at a Masters in Psychiatry from the University of Melbourne and specialisation in Forensic Psychiatry. He's now based within the Victorian prison system, working mainly with female inmates. We've all heard about the the comorbidities of, I guess, mental illness and, I guess, being incarcerated. Is that does, is that something that runs true in Victoria? Absolutely. Um, and in fact, the government is investing very heavily uh, in mental health services within the prisons. I think what happened, unfortunately, is with deinstitutionalisation, with all the closures of the asylums, uh, we didn't really think through where many of those patients were going to live or be supported. And many of them ended up on the streets. And unfortunately, they're more likely to um, not obey rules. And so often many of them have ended up in prison. Uh, And for many years, uh, I guess they haven't had the services that they require or deserve. Um, But the government looks like they're actually pouring significant funds into into that having recognised the problem. I'm going to ask you an impossible question on that topic, and it is, is it a chicken or, or the egg situation? Does the lack of resources in the prison system mean that we're, we're allowing people to leave who still have significant mental illness burden? Or is it that having an untreated or partially treated mental illness will lead you into the justice system? What's going on? Uh, so I think, first of all, it's fantastic that the problem has been recognised within the prison system and that there's a lot more resources being made available for prisoners. But I think we all probably agree that, um, in essence, better funding for community psychiatric services, drug and alcohol rehabilitation services may prevent prisoners from becoming prisoners or criminals in the first place. Now, many people talk about us having a mental health crisis or there's an epidemic of mental illness, certainly depression, anxiety, drug use, addiction. These are words we hear in the in the media every week, if not every day. From your professional perspective, do you think that we are seeing more mental illness than ever before? Is that a function of modern life or is it something else going on? Look, I'm not all over the the figures, uh, to be fair, but I have a sneaking suspicion that perhaps the the prevalence uh, of these conditions is not changed necessarily over the years, um, but more that we are able to recognise it more, um, that people are becoming less concerned about stigma and more willing to talk about and to open up and, and uh make their uh, issues well known to clinicians and friends and family. Um, And those 
kind of high prevalence conditions uh, are becoming much more acceptable from a society and cultural perspective. So I'm not I'm not 100% sure whether there's more uh, or whether we are just uh, accepting it as part of uh, the human condition. Do you think that we're getting less resilient? I, w- I would just say yes, anecdotally, from from my own personal experience and, and friends and family, uh, you know, that I've had the opportunity to observe that perhaps uh, the the people of yesteryear might have gone down the philosophy of just sucking it up, um, but we are more concerned and more, I guess, open to pathologizing what would otherwise have been the normal condition. Can we talk about that word pathologizing? Because, well, firstly, I'm not sure it's an actual word, but I get I get what you're saying. What do you mean by pathologizing? Uh, so, in essence, uh, pathology is basically disease. Pathological specimen means a, a piece, some tissue that's diseased and pathologizing would be attaching disease or illness to, I guess, a symptom. So clear as mud. Yeah, that's clear as mud. So I mean, I I would hazard a guess that there probably isn't a person alive that hasn't had a period of feeling down or feeling down for a prolonged period or feeling anxious or not being able to sleep. But at some point, that tips into territory whereby you turn up at a doctor's office and get handed a script. What's your perspective on, you know, how we're medicating disease at the moment? Is it enough? Is it the wrong people? Is it the wrong stuff? What's going on out there in the community? And again, like I guess much of this is personal opinion, but I see a like a, a move towards uh, medicating uh, mild depressive uh, illness, and I think that's largely driven by a number of things. I think uh, there's lots of GPs out there who are now confident enough and willing enough to um, diagnose mental illness without necessarily referring to specialist psychiatrists. And I also think that probably uh, drug companies have had a lot to do with that, not so much now um, because they're more highly scrutinised, but many years ago um, really encouraging the use of medications, particularly antidepressants, for these high prevalence conditions, anxiety, depression, etc. When are drugs essential though? So this is really my area of expertise is that small percentage of high risk individuals who are usually very unwell, socioeconomically deprived often and incredibly high risk either to themselves or to others where I think treatment is essential. What do you mean by high risk? Because, I mean, I have a sense of what that means, but I imagine that many people listening in don't have a sense of high risk. Does that mean they're about to, you know, conduct a terrorist attack on a school or is it is well, it, it less sinister than that? Well, it does include that, but it also can include things like um, being at risk of harming themselves, uh, not necessarily with the purpose of dying. It can be uh, at risk of committing suicide, uh, at risk of harming others. There's also less overt risks like harm to your reputation. I'm sure if you were manic uh, and uh, hadn't been to sleep for five days and decided to walk into work naked, the the rest of your colleagues would judge that. And people who are 
I guess, in that frame of mind where they're not making great decisions for themselves, you know, are, are at risk of those kinds of things uh, when they become unwell. And so what's the basis of, I guess, the gold standard approach to medical or psychiatric treatment in a situation like that? We've got someone who's really, really unwell. Well, thankfully, as I said, it's a fairly small percentage of the population that end up with uh, in that kind of a situation uh, where they, I guess, uh, aren't able to make good decisions about their healthcare and, and you know, usually that uh, exists in the form of either psychosis where they lose touch with reality or uh, mania, like I said before, where they've got an elevated mood and, and again, they're a bit disinhibited and making, uh, again, decisions that aren't necessarily in their best interest or the opposite end of that scale where they might be severely depressed um, to the point where they're not able to eat or drink, not able to get out of bed, uh, not able, again, to, to function as they normally would. Thankfully, as I said, it's a, it's a very small percentage of the population but in those situations, it's super important that they're assessed by professionals with uh, experience in that area and that they get the treatment that they need. Would you say that all of these, I guess, all mental illness has at its roots um, trauma of some kind? I wouldn't say all. Uh, we certainly are starting to recognise that trauma, especially during childhood uh, and development, often has um, longer lasting or uh, delayed effects that, that uh, I guess, show themselves, you know, during times of stress uh, later on in life. I don't necessarily subscribe to any particular, particular theory about how uh, a patient, you know, came to um, present in this way at this time. But I respect, you know, a lot of the different theories, for example, you know, the importance of attachments and, and ha having adequate caregivers and, and not having trauma in your life um, early on. Uh, I always kind of reconcile that with the idea that maybe it, it is because it just is, which is, which is a bit unsettling perhaps for, for some people to, to think about. So when is something like compulsory treatment or forced treatment Absolutely essential. So there's a very strict set of criteria uh, which all psychiatrists would need to adhere to when assessing a patient and their need for compulsory treatment. Um, broadly speaking, it's mainly dependent upon whether or not they have diagnosable mental illness, whether or not they're at risk to either themselves or others, and the ability to actually gain that treatment immediately. It's a combination of having the presentation and the risk, but also having the required treatment available for them at that time. In Australia in general, um, being a, a westernised country has a very, I think, a very good record, you know, with regards to human rights in this area. We've got a, a new Mental Health Act as of 2014 that came into uh, existence that is very conscious of the uh, fact that many of these patients are often underprivileged and uh, I guess under resource, under supported in the community and that we would then be taking away their human rights even further by making them have treatment. But we, our system accommodates for this and is highly scrutinised and made accountable by, we have a, a mental health tribunal that ensures anyone who's 
uh, been made a compulsory patient gets a review within a certain amount of time and they have the opportunity to appeal the compulsory decision at any time as well. How many people that are, say, incarcerated also being forcibly treated? So I guess that's one of the things that I really love about my work is that in prison uh, in Victoria, you're not allowed to enforce treatment. So all of the treatment that takes place in the unit that I work on uh, takes place on a, in a voluntary basis. All of the women trust in the health service to guide them and educate them, but the decision as to taking medication, for example, is up to the, up to the women. So... Anthony, for the everyday person, and there are plenty of, plenty of us out there that, that have found ourselves in this position who have been depressed, anxious, uh, drinking too much, is medication the solution or a solution? Like, is that something you think that we're not taking seriously enough? Look, I don't know if it's a, an issue about whether or not it's taken seriously enough. I think the medication is a very real option uh, that should be thought about and discussed with your health professionals. I, as I said, come from a, a, a background of having ex, uh, treated extremely high-risk individuals where, in essence, to me, it's fairly clear that that's what's indicated. Where there's human beings that are, in essence, functional performing okay in their everyday activities uh, but have certain symptoms, I think that it's worthwhile considering. Uh, but again, without knowing the individual circumstance, I think that that would be a decision to be made between that particular person and their doctor. Where did treatments like, say, ECT or, or electroconvulsive therapy, which is sort of making a bit of a resurgence, where do they come into the picture? Again, it's for the most severely unwell so people that are severely depressed, either with where their thoughts have um, progressed into, a, into the point of psychosis, where they've again lost touch with reality, uh, or where they're not eating and drinking, or where in some cases they're catatonic, uh, not able to move, not able to uh, acknowledge the world around them. This is a, our gold standard treatment. Uh, and to this day, we're still not exactly sure why it works. I prefer to think of it as a bit of a control alt delete for the for the brain, but when you've seen it in in practice and you've seen these severely disabled people reawaken, um, I don't think anybody would discount it as a, a necessary treatment for severe depression. What does it actually involve? These so, days I'm talking about. Not yeah, it's nothing like we all refer to one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but it's very different to these days. We have modern anaesthetics uh, and we have very brief controlled seizures that result in, as I said, uh, recalibration of the neurochemicals in the brain. And, and for some reason, uh, we genuinely get a reasonable result. Um, there's obviously potential side effects. Uh, so we have to consider those for each patient. But on, on the basis of uh, risk and reward, when someone is severely unwell, it's genuinely fairly clear-cut that something needs to be done and but done straight away. It's not something you can tap into if you're having a bad day. No, and I, I don't think uh, any... Well, I would hope that none of my colleagues uh, would ever prescribe it for that kind of a situation. Yeah. No. What about... I'm curious to know... Given that you're working at kind of the severe end of things, what's your view on alternative therapies, whether that's meditating, ice bathing, 
energy healing, all of that stuff. What's your uh, take on it? In isolation, I'd question their true validity and whether they actually are able to treat genuine illness the, that I deal with and that I treat with medication and, and other forms of treatment like shock therapy. But I'm very open-minded and would, as long as it's not having a negative effect on, on the patients, uh, I would say embrace these complementary therapies and, and there might be something in there that uh, resonates with, with a particular patient that, that helps them in their pathway to recovery. What about if you had some family member come in and go, my family member's addicted, severely addicted, I, you know, I want to try alternative therapies, what would your view be? Again, I think I'd be reluctant to discount alternative therapies, but in isolation, uh, that it really concerns me. And I think the most important thing here is accurate expert assessment, presentation of the options, particularly the medical-based options uh, for treatment. Uh, and then I think as the next stage or a, a, a tier down, the complementary therapies could be considered. Anthony, thank you for a riveting discussion and joining us on The Alternative Truth. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. There's a saying that goes, show me the child at seven and I'll show you the person. Listening to both guests, what I found remarkable is how closely aligned they were on the subject of childhood trauma. Both guests acknowledge the profound impact this has on our mental health outcomes in later life. Ryan made a case for getting to the root of our emotional distress and healing ourselves from the source of our discomfort including our stories. Yet many of the modalities he talked about remain without strong evidence. Anthony, on the other hand, was committed to the need for medication and long-term medical treatment in many. He also highlighted the ongoing and new application of electrical shock therapies for those who won't respond to anything else. Importantly, what he did say is that mental health ideally has the active cooperation of the sufferer, Good therapeutic rapport and feeling valued is one of the best safety nets we can hope to have. What remains to be seen is for those who do have histories of trauma, how might they defy their odds? What role does the system have in preventing trauma in the first place or not making it worse through the treatment process? Thank you again for joining us on The Alternative Truth and join me in the rest of the series where we dive into whether you can hack your cancer odds with lifestyle, the pros and cons of the keto diet, what works in the world of beauty and whether we should be eating animals or only plants. Some listeners might have found the content of this episode upsetting. If you need professional support, please call Lifeline 13 11 14. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Greenberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au.